0: I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of Money-wise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called Moneywise. That's one word, money wise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find Moneywise wherever you get your podcast. Check it out.
1: Hello and welcome to the Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Much attention has been focusing on vaccines to prevent coronavirus infections, but there's an equally fervent search for drugs to treat COVID-19. And at last, some good news. It seems two existing arthritis drugs can save lives and free up hospital beds. And the Yamaha DX7 synthesizer has an instantly recognizable and unmistakably 1980s sound. We look back on how it came to be used in so many number one hits, and why even now trendy producer types continue to reach for it. But first... In America, fallout from the storming of the Capitol building on Wednesday has continued.
0: It was an act of sedition that was incited and encouraged by Donald Trump.
2: President Trump sought to overturn the results of an election
3: and of a fair election. He sought a coup by misleading people with
0: lies. Donald Trump may be in the Twitter penalty box, but he still has access to the nuclear codes.
1: Calls to remove President Trump from office began before the siege even ended and have only intensified since.
0: There is strong support in the Congress for impeaching the president a second time. The House, if they come together and have a process, I will definitely consider whatever articles they might move. What he did was wicked.
1: Today, Democratic lawmakers are planning to invoke the Constitution's 25th Amendment, designed to transfer power if a president is unable to discharge the duties of office. And if that doesn't work, they plan to pursue another option.
4: There are three possible ways that Donald Trump leaves office before his term is up on January the 20th.
1: John Pridot is The Economist's US editor and the host of Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics.
4: The first way is that President Trump resigns. That seems very unlikely. The second way is that Mike Pence, the vice president, invokes the 25th Amendment and half of the cabinet agrees to co-sign. That seems unlikely because it seems unlikely Mike Pence would do that. There's also a legal problem there, which is it's not clear that President Trump is incapacitated in the sense that the 25th Amendment is meant to deal with. And so the third and final option is impeachment
1: by the House and removal by the Senate. And so the impeachment option is the only plausible one at this stage.
4: Yeah, I think that's right, Jason. And in the House, at least, things have already gone quite far down that road. So Democrats have drawn up articles of impeachment which accuse the president of inciting a riot at the Capitol, effectively. It looks fairly clear that there'd be enough Democrats to impeach the president. And so it's quite likely that by the end of this week, Donald Trump is the only president in American history to have been impeached twice. Then things would move to the Senate and there it gets more complicated, both because Republicans have a majority in the Senate at the moment and also because to convict and therefore remove the president in an impeachment trial in the Senate, you need a two-thirds majority.
1: In which case, we find ourselves in the same situation as a, as a previous impeachment. It seemed then that the, the Senate was never going to convict him. It, it seems perhaps that way now.
4: I think you're right, but I do think it's slightly different from the previous situation. If you remember, with impeachment, not a single House Republican voted for Donald Trump's impeachment. And then only a single Republican senator voted for his conviction, Mitt Romney of Utah. This one would be different for a few reasons, Number one, I think the offence that the president has committed is more readily understandable by the public at large, and I think that changes the politics of it a bit. Number two, you've already had at least one Republican in the House say that he'd vote to impeach the president, and I suspect that there would be ten, maybe more, who, when it came to it, would vote to do so. And then in the Senate, you already have a handful of republicans who've said that they would vote to convict and remove the president and so this impeachment trial starts out with more cross-party support than the other one did
1: and what's your view on the on the purpose of this though is this just censuring a president after something unspeakable happens at the capitol or is this a matter of of protecting the republic from from the last few days of this presidency
4: Yes, I think House Democrats think that they have a constitutional duty here to impeach the president who's done something impeachable. There's a second argument that leaving the president in office for the remainder of his term carries some risk to the constitution. And there's a third one, which is that if the president were to be impeached and removed, that would prevent him from running for federal office again. And that's appealing to Democrats. It might also be appealing to Republicans in the sense that there are quite a large number of Republicans who would like to get shot of Donald Trump, but don't know how to do so. This is the quickest way of getting him out of their party for good.
1: But there's a significant part of the electorate for whom any kind of censure for the president, any, any attempt to, to limit his power, is further evidence of, of conspiracy and something to be, to be resisted. I mean, isn't that a concern here?
4: I think it's a consideration, but I think you have to recall that a large number, indeed a large majority of Republicans tell pollsters that the election was stolen and that Joe Biden shouldn't be inaugurated. So does this raise the temperature further? Yeah, I think it does a bit, but that said, it's pretty high already. I don't think there's a sort of non-divisive, bipartisan, calm way out of the political situation that America is in at the moment. Frankly, there are concerns now about more political violence in Washington, D.C., from the president's hardcore supporters, whether he's impeached or not before his term is up.
1: And what about the mechanics? After all, we're, we're less than two weeks away from the inauguration of a new president. Could any of this actually play out in time?
4: I think if Mitch McConnell and co., the Republican majority in the Senate, really wanted to do this quickly, They could. But I agree that the likelier outcome, I think, is that it's delayed. Jim Clyburn, the number three in the House Democratic caucus, has talked about maybe delaying the trial in the Senate until after President Trump has left office, which would be quite strange. And it's not clear whether that's possible according to the rules.
1: And however this plays out, it's interrupting the transition to the Biden presidency in a big way, right? It's
4: certainly taking attention away from the transition. The Biden team is doing its best to say, well, everything's going on as normal and you know, we'll be in power from January the 20th. But if there is a Senate trial in process, if there's even a Senate trial in the offing, then I would imagine that that would have some effect on a legislative business during the beginning of the Biden term.
1: What other fallout has there been for Mr. Trump and, and the participants of the, the riding?
4: Well, in the immediate aftermath of the riot at the Capitol, it seemed that the people responsible for breaking in and smashing things up were going to sort of get away from it. In fact, it was really striking how brazen they were in terms of publicizing their activity on social media. In the days since, many of them have been tracked down and identified and charged. The second thing that's happened is that both Twitter and Facebook have suspended Donald Trump's accounts, which affects his ability to talk direct to his supporters unmediated. A couple of Donald Trump's cabinet members have resigned and also some White House staffers. Meanwhile, at the White House itself, there's been pretty much silence from President Trump for four days now.
1: It's easy to see in, in all this a reaction greater than, than to, to anything else of the Trump presidency. I mean, do you, do you see here the, the beginnings of the end of Trumpism or, or is this just a sort of an immediate aftershock?
4: I think there's a real political opportunity here for the Republican Party. I think most Americans were pretty appalled, and rightly so, by what happened at the Capitol. And I think it's pretty clear that Donald Trump was largely responsible for it in the sense that he asked people to go to the Capitol and protest against The election result and stop the steal. So one of the things that has been the big story of the Trump era is this incredibly strong bond that Donald Trump has made between him and the Republican Party and Republican primary voters. This certainly weakens him. And the Republican Party has a real opportunity now, if it wants to take it, to turn their back on President Trump. And I think the thing to watch over the next week or two weeks is whether party leaders actually want to take that opportunity.
1: John, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The race to inoculate the world against the coronavirus is underway. About 24 million vaccine doses have now been administered. But that's not fast enough. A surge in infections is overwhelming hospitals. In England, Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty warned that the next few weeks will be the worst of the pandemic for the National Health Service.
3: What we need to do before the vaccines have had their effect, because it's going to take several weeks before that happens, is we need to really double down. This is
0: everybody's problem.
1: And in America, more than 130,000 people are currently hospitalized with COVID-19. In California's Los Angeles County, the hardest hit area of the country, many hospitals have no more room in their intensive care units. So, even as vaccines are developed and deployed to prevent COVID 19 cases, there remains an urgent need for drugs to help treat those who have it.
2: On January 7th, a study called REMAP CAP, which is conducted in England and five other countries, reported results from clinical trials of Two drugs which are currently used to treat arthritis.
1: Sloveya Chankova is our healthcare correspondent.
2: The results, which have not yet been peer-reviewed but will be soon, are very promising. They show that these two drugs can reduce the death rate amongst those severely ill COVID-19 patients by around a quarter.
1: And why is it that drugs normally administered for arthritis would be a help in COVID-19?
2: So these two drugs called tocilizumab and cerilumab, they're normally used to reduce inflammation in patients with arthritis. And inflammation is a big problem with COVID-19. It's actually one of the ways that COVID actually kills severely ill patients. And what happens is that the body's immune system causes inflammation and it's usually helpful. That's how it fights off an infection. But... With COVID 19, in some patients, the inflammation just goes overboard. So, there has been a search going on for over a year for drugs that can prevent that hyperinflammation. And so far, we've had only one drug, a steroid called dexamethasone, which was proven to reduce dramatically death rates.
1: And how did these two drugs emerge as good candidates then?
2: So, dexamethasone dampens the immune system across the board, whereas docilizumab and cerilumab are a little bit more targeted. They are both made of antibodies that block the effect of a specific protein called interleukin-6 that is known to stalk the immune response and has been particularly prominent in patients with COVID-19. So they're really targeting that protein, which is a big problem with severely ill-COVID patients.
1: And so how did we come to know that these two drugs are so good at reducing that inflammation?
2: The clinical trial enrolled 800 patients who were hospitalized for COVID-19 who were all ill enough to require transfer to intensive care units. And the results were really striking. In the group of patients who received the standard treatment, which already includes dexamethasone as a standard of care, nearly 36% died. In the group that received the standard treatment, and then on top of it, one of these two anti-inflammatory drugs, only 27% of patients died. So that's a massive effect. And another very important finding from the trial was that patients who received these drugs recovered faster. They were discharged from hospital seven to 10 days earlier, which also is a massive effect because normally COVID-19 patients stay in hospitals for a very long time.
1: And so with that knowledge in hand then, how soon might we see it sort of put to use and and where?
2: So tocilizumab, one of the drugs, is already being used here in the UK. There are already supplies in hospitals, the guidelines for treating COVID-19 patients have already been changed. And it will be a drug that will be used in other countries soon, I'm sure. But unlike dexamethasone, which is a very cheap drug, it costs a couple of dollars for a course of treatment, the cost of these two anti-inflammatory drugs is an issue. In Britain, a course of treatment, which is an intravenous infusion, costs around £1,000. So that's really expensive for developing countries. And although in Britain, it's probably very cost-effective because a day In-intensive care in hospital costs the National Health Service here around £2,000 per patient. So compared to £1,000 for the drug, it's a good deal to say nothing of the lives saved.
1: So it seems that we are finding more more treatments, more drugs, more things that are already clinically approved. Is there more in the pipeline like this that can give us a bit more hope about treating COVID-19?
2: Yes, absolutely. There are many more drugs which are being tested around the world, some in very large clinical trials here in the UK, where probably around a quarter of COVID-19 patients in hospitals are enrolled in one trial or another. And some of these trials have shown that some drugs are not effective, which is also useful knowledge because they're rigorously conducted randomized trials with very large patient samples, so you can be very confident in the results. But there are several other drugs that are still being tested, and we may well find more drugs that we can add to the treatment protocols.
1: So thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Jason.
3: The 1980s was by any measure an eclectic musical decade. It was the time of new romantics and of glam metal pop icons like Madonna.
1: Bill Ridgers is The Economist's Asia digital editor. A busy job, but one that leaves him a bit of time to jam out to one of the most influential synthesizers of all time.
3: As diverse as these sounds were, they all shared an unmistakable 80s sound. And that is mainly down to the influence of a single instrument, the DX7, made by Yamaha. Grasping why it became quite so dominant means understanding what went before it. Before the DX7 came along in 1983, the world of synths were really dominated by these enormous analog keyboards. They are the sort of things, if you've ever seen, footage of prog rock bands like Emerson, Lake and Palmer. You'll remember these huge keyboards with these enormous circuit boards stacked up behind them. Being able to use these old-fashioned keyboards required a real technical know-how. The synth of the past would create sounds using something called subtraction. And what that in essence means is that you would take a bass tone and you would strip away frequencies from that to create something new. And it's rather like a sculptor taking a block of marble and chiseling out a sculpture from it. You needed to know how to use oscillators and amplifiers and you had to turn knobs and patch circuits together with cable. And it's for that reason that it was sort of the preserve of very rich pop stars who had a retinue of roadies to sort of help them along with this. The DX7 really came along and changed all of that. The history of the DX7 can really be traced back to a professor called John Chowning at Stanford University. In 1967, he discovered a way to synthesize sound using something called frequency modulation. It's quite a difficult concept to understand, but essentially it's using one signal to modulate the pitch of another, thus producing a new timbre or sound characteristic. Downey took this technology and hawked it around the biggest makers of electronic musical instruments of the time. In the end, he took it to Yamaha, which is stuffed full of engineers, and it has a real appetite for disruption. They got around to working with frequency modulation and turning the synthesizer into a humble consumer product. It democratized synthesizer music for musicians throughout the 80s priced at just $1,500. It outperformed many of the synthesizers that cost a lot more and with which it was competing. It was easy to use. It wasn't necessarily easy to program yourself. e One is the sort of bell-like piano sound that you'll hear on, for example, George Michael's Careless Whisper. Whitney Houston's greatest love of all. The sound is kind of instantly redolent of the mid-1980s, and you can't really hear it without transporting yourself back to that moment in time. For all its success and all the huge bands that used the DX7, it was actually quite a limited keyboard. If you listen to Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up, that is recorded almost entirely on a DX7, and it is a song which some people love and some people hate, but you couldn't accuse it of having a a deep and rich sound to it. By the end of the 1980s, people, I think, had got really bored of the DX7. It had become so ubiquitous and it had become so associated with a particular kind of 1980s sound. But in fact, the sound of the DX7 refused to die. In the 1990s you could hear its influence on a lot of the house tracks that would be being played in nightclubs in cities around the world sega used a modified version of the dx7 chip in its mega drive games console and today 80s music is becoming chic again there is now a virtual program called the dx7v which many producers now use to get that just so 80 sound into their tracks. I think the DX7 has endured because it is a keyboard that, even while it was approximating the sounds of the past, it always sounded futuristic.
1: all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and you can get a great deal on a subscription to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.
0: I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money and we ask them all about their finances and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, money wise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.